Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. So as your company scales, processes and ways of working are bound to break. And as a result, we're always looking to learn from those who've made it through periods of high growth and can share their lessons learned or, or whatever it is they really wish they'd known in those early days. It's lessons like these that actually got today's guest on our radar. That's Melody Co. Melody recently became a venture partner at Nextview Ventures, but spent the three and a half years prior leading product at Blue Apron, the ingredient recipe delivery service that went public earlier this year. Blue Apron grew 25x in her time there, and while those key lessons were still fresh in her mind, she wrote them up and shared them in a post on Nextview's blog. After reading it, something I encourage all of you to do, our co-founder Des Trainer, who hosts this week's conversation, knew we had to get her on the show. Melody joined Blue Apron as its very first product hire when the company was only 18 months old. Fast forward to her departure, and she was leading a 35-person team across product management, product design, and analytics. Today, her crew at Nextview focuses on seed stage investments within the everyday economy. That means products and founders that redesign the way everyday people live their everyday lives. In her chat with Des, Melody explains the nuances of managing a product that's both an online and offline experience. Work with other functional experts to bring an experience to customers that is holistic and cohesive so that, you know, regardless whether a customer touches Blue Apron through a physical insert or through cooking the meal or through managing the delivery through the app, it, is, it all makes sense. Hire startup really does need to inject process and hierarchy as you grow. People kind of want to know what the expectation of them is and how to get decisions made, where to get feedback. And why you need to invest proactively in finding better ways of working across teams. It's not like, oh, other teams just try not to be good citizens. It's really just a reality of teams growing too fast and you have too many new people coming on board without clearly defined scope and or just miscommunication on expectation and such. If you like what you hear, you can check out our full library of Inside Intercom interviews wherever you go for your podcast these days. But now, let's hand things over to Des, who's in conversation with Melody Co. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Welcome to Inside Intercom. Des Trainer here, co-founder of Intercom. And five weeks ago, I read a fantastic piece titled What I Learned Helping Blue Apron Grow 25x in Three and a Half Years. The piece was packed with insight, knowledge. I learned so much from reading it. And I really, really wanted to talk to the person behind uh, the article. Melody Co., welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, you're currently a venture partner at NextView Ventures, but maybe people might be familiar with NextView and people will certainly be familiar with Blue Apron, but maybe you could give us a quick rundown of your career as people might not be as familiar with you yourself. Sure. As you said, I'm currently a venture partner with NextView. NextView is a C-stage focused VC firm. We are based in New York and Boston and invest nationally, focusing on what we called everyday economy, essentially interested in partner with founders, entrepreneurs who leverage technology in some way and fashion to redesign the daily lives of everyday people like you and me. Right. Overview of my career, as you mentioned, uh, most recently I was head of product at Blue Apron and I joined the company when the company was about 18 months old, so pretty tiny still, had about 20 people in the office. I joined as a first product hired and went on to 
help build and lead product management team, design team, and analytics team at Blue Apron over the course of three and a half years, leading to the company going public. And earlier, uh, it's really what I've done, most of it, uh, reflecting back, most have done technology entrepreneurial related stuff in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done venture investing early in my career, and I've actually tried to start my own company, worked on it for about a year and a half. And before Blue Apron, I was a product manager at another startup in New York at the time called Fab. So it's kind of hybrid between some operating experiences, some investing experiences. I guess I'm now back to investing again. Right. You sat on all sides of the table, I guess. <laughs> Going from a public company to working with seed stage companies seems like it's quite an extreme change, I guess, right? Yeah. What did you miss or what, what drew you back? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, uh, when I joined Blue Apron, I remember I was we I interviewed with them in a co-working space. We didn't even have office and my first week was there and second week we finally moved into our, uh, I guess what I would call our first real office. And I would say, you know, three and a half years at Blue Apron, probably the most fun years were the first two years uh, when the company was, was still pretty small and just a lot of entrepreneur energy, uh, mm-hmm. even though I wasn't one of the founders. I mean, that's not to say that I didn't enjoy, I, I said I thoroughly enjoyed my entire tenure at Blue Apron. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are a lot of fun things about building a team and helping the company scale. But I think, you know, part of the reason for me to decide to take this role is really, uh, I miss kind of the earlier stage actions and I miss being close to the entrepreneur energy. Right. And also, you know, I think the difference between working at a company and help the company grow as opposed to being on the investing side uh, is a depth versus breadth trade-off. So yeah. I'm excited to be back to getting more of that breadth and seeing, you know, innovations come, all sorts of different things that people are working on who know way more about the space than I do. So that's a lot of fun too. So thinking specifically when you joined Blue Apron, like there's two things that are interesting to me. One is that you were the first product hire. And then secondly, the, the kind of the nature of Blue Apron is that I guess the product, it, it, you know, in a lot of people's minds when they buy a Blue Apron, the, pro- the product is the ingredients to show up on the doorstep, right? It's, yep. it's, it's not necessarily the software. Like, right. h- however, the software is, is like in a lot of ways the conduit for it. If you do right. your job well, you'll sell more. But um, I, I'd be curious to know, what was it like when you got there as a head of product? And, and then secondly, how did you kind of relate with the actual the physical product the actual raw ingredients how, how did you like differentiate the two was there like is there a, yeah. there a head of product who was in charge of the ingredients or how did that how did that all work yeah 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 i wish i was in charge of the ingredients because that job is more fun mm-hmm. um but um when i actually when i first joined believe i wasn't head of product we didn't have anyone in product so they just needed a product manager right. uh, so i actually joined as individual contributor believe Apron hired two people me and my colleague who uh, end up being on my team, and we we just helped start the product management practice. So that was that was kind of the initial expectation. And I think along the way, we realized that you know the company was growing. We realized we need, actually need someone to help set the vision for. Okay, so you know we software is an integral part of every single step of this company's operation, as well as every single touch point of the user journey. So. We actually need to take this more seriously and really have a point of view on this, mm-hmm. uh, which answer you know kind of leads to answer your second question. You know, Blue Apron because it's a physical and digital nature, it is extremely cross-functional company, and as a result, the role of product management 
you know, really is try to be the person who knows most about the technology's limitation and potential and really work with folks across, you know, marketing, operation, customer service, supply chain, culinary, who, you know, by the way, is a team of really, really awesome chefs who, you know, spent all their time in test kitchen and designing and thinking about what the physical product is every single week. But I, the way I think about it and the way I you know, really try to uh, distill down for the team is that, hey, you guys are responsible connecting all the dots. And a lot of the times, you know, anything that we want to do for our customers has a technology and software component. And you're probably in the best position to understand how to massage that trade-off right. and, and what we can actually do and what the timeline could look like. And really just try to tie that all together and work with other functional experts to bring an experience to customers that is holistic and cohesive so that, you know, regardless whether a customer touches Blue Apron through a physical insert or through cooking the meal or through managing the delivery through the app, it, is, it all makes sense. As like the product manager, do you care if people are like logging in every day or like, I mean, their engagement with the software is kind of secondary to like their engagement mm-hmm. with the ingredients. Does that change how you think about the metrics of like what an active user is and all that sort of stuff? Yes. So that's a good question. Blue Apron's business model, at least how it appears to the outside world today, is what I would call a flexible subscription. You sign up, but it's not like Netflix or your magazine. You actually have complete flexibility to turn on and off each individual delivery. So engagement as a concept for, for Blue Apron is actually quite tricky because it's not just like, oh, you know, you draw X, Y graph and the more engagement, the better. That's not necessarily the case. And I, I would call the digital experience responsibility is to create thoughtful engagement. Going back to kind of answer this question at a higher level, the metrics are not necessarily about, hey, how many times does people come in to touch the experience? But you think about digital as a lever that you can pull to build habits and and build loyalty. So you kind of have to start from that and say, okay, you know, we want to get some screen time with our customers and so we can help influence the decision. And by influencing the decision, you know, it can be, hey, this is the recipes that you're going to be missing out because you currently say you're going to skip two weeks from now. But the digital experience has the ability and the, and the potential to help change your mind if you were willing to engage with us in the first place. But that's a thoughtful engagement, not just dropping people in any part of the digital experience. And obviously onboarding and signing people up and getting them through the funnel is one whole piece. And then obviously maintaining an active subscription so they, they can log in and, as you said, like use the flexible features of like what they want delivered when. Was onboarding and the sort of sign-up funnel a, a separate concern? And was that also in the realm of product or did that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that is, a, that is a, you know, it would be a different PM uh, owning that scope. But yes, that's absolutely part of the product's purview. I would say that, you know, regardless is which part of the software experience, it's a pretty collaborative process because you also have to consider the ups funnel and the down funnel. Like what yeah. are the types of marketing campaigns that are coming in? What kind of offers do we give to people, if any, and as a result, product marketing kind of have to work very closely in sync so that, again, the, the touch point handoffs make sense. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, same as like warehouse management system software. And then that's a very close partnership between product and, and engineering, obviously, and our, our fulfillment operations team at Blue Apron. And famously, Blue Apron has had like, you know, meteoric sort of growth in users. 
did that like slow things down from a product point of view or, or did you still have some of the freedom because as we said like people don't necessarily have to log in every day yeah so i think you know the tricky thing about growing in terms of headcount as i kind of alluded in a post is that you just have more coordination to do internally and as a result it is tougher to move nearly as fast as you want when you were you know you get three people in the room and you just decide what to do uh, I think the focus on polish is another element that really, you know, at least at Blue Apron, the preference is to build a polished and thoughtful experience over uh, speed. Obviously, we also want to do things as fast as possible. That became a little tougher. But at the same time, the, the, the beauty about software is that you can run experiments constantly. And there are many pockets of the business leverage that, is pure digital. And I would encourage the teams to not forget about that. And that those are independent levers that you can pull that you can move a little faster on. And to make that work, were you running like multiple versions of signup flows or multiple different like sort of subscription dashboards in parallel, like in sort of A-B tests? Yeah, probably similar to how you guys run A-B. We probably at any given point in time, three, four, five experiments going on, different parts of the user experience. You know, obviously, you also want to make sure that it doesn't jeopardize the end user experience and would be conscious of, like, how big is the test population right. and coordinate very closely with our, with our CX team to make sure that nobody's confused. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. I'm curious, one thing a lot of product managers, certainly in Intercom, but in general in software, stress over is churn. How do you think about churn from a product standpoint? I know obviously there's a, there's a different issue in terms of people might just stop wanting the ingredients or they might like, you know, I don't know, get married and start cooking or whatever. You know, there's a million reasons why people like nothing to do with the software, about it, why they might stop using Blue Apron. Right. Uh, but how would the product team connect with sort of the idea of people canceling? Is it relevant or do you just assume it's not probably the software's fault? I think the mentality is always that, you know, if a customer is suffering or if key business metrics is everybody's responsibility as opposed to, oh, you know, that must be so-and-so's fault. I would say that, you know, internally at 
Blue Apron, we had pretty good grasp of the types of reason why people decide to not continue the subscription contract with us. And here, you know, I think the, the distinction again is that Blue Apron it has a flexible subscription. So uh, it is not as binary as, hey, I either have my Netflix on or I have my Netflix off. There's added subtlety to that. It's right. almost more like an e-commerce business because Blue Apron, what it does is just kind of checks out for you on your behalf. Now, that being said, there are things, you know, once you know the reason why people, at least what people tell you, the reason why they cancel, and also we've done a ton of user studies, there are certain levers the software can pull, and thus is a responsibility of the user experience. And there are other things that requires more cross-functional right. endeavor. Um, you know, one, one example that would be, hey, people just want more choice. Yeah. Okay, well, that's kind of the entire company level endeavor, but technology and software, as you probably know, will have to play a key part because that's a fundamental change to the way the software handles order management and such. Right. One thing that you you touch on in your post, and I think it's it's been so true in my experience as well, and, and I have to word this carefully, you can be more liberal, but you make the point that common sense judgment sort of stops scaling in a, in a product team. And you, you talked about how you, you went to like sort of the actual live software and found a pretty clunky experience. You're like, well, how did this get live? Or like, you know, wh- whose idea was this in some sense? You advocate for like standards and processes and like just in general, like, you know, a bit more maybe rigor in terms of how we ship to sort of help solve that. Do you have an idea of when this tipping point is where it makes sense to inject a bit more process? Or is it kind of like once you see things breaking, you can you should start fixing or, you know, yeah. if, you, if you're to do it all again, would you would you be like process from the start or how would it work? No, I would not say process from the start. Um, I mean, I think reflecting back, you know, my personal team. So when I first took on product management team, I had four direct reports immediately. And I needed to hire two people at that point. And I think once I hired those two PMs, I start feeling that a little bit. However, my management span is only six people only. You know, people recommend five to seven, but six people was okay. Yeah. Uh, once I got beyond that, once I added more direct reports and then added another layer then I realized that that starts to break because then you're bringing outside, I mean, very seasoned director level hires, but they all had their own version of what they're used to uh, when it comes to quote unquote kind of judgment and quality threshold. So I think that's, that's for me personally, I realized like, oh, we need to actually spill it out for people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I actually funny, I just talked to someone this morning who talked about at another startup, they don't necessarily, they're anti-process and anti-hierarchy. Uh, yeah. And I actually think a lot of times it's very confusing and frustrating for people because people kind of want to know what the expectation of them is and how to get decisions made, where to get feedback, and spelling things out a little more will actually be helpful for people. And obviously the caveat here is that it depends on the culture. The other example I'll give is quickly is the engineering team. I think when we hit about 15 people without any engineering management layer, that's when also things start breaking down. And I think like you're, you're totally right. Like I'm, I'm very much a sort of an advocate of like, you know, hierarchy is not a bad thing. It actually helps uh, as does management. And I think most people who boast about being flat or having no managers, inevitably, if you kind of double click on their sort of brash statement, what you'll find is all the traits of management are alive and well in the company. They just don't have the the word manager, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. One sort of a question I'm curious about there is like, 
you know, you can have managers, but you're also kind of uh, advocating in kind of like um, processes. You, you talked a lot about, like, say, designing better ways for teams to collaborate. Was there a specific, like, boiling point where, you know, where you were like, shit, we need to get good at this. Like, we need to redesign how we work together. And, like, was there any any solutions or changes that, that come to mind when you think of, like, the various iterations you would have gone through in three and a half years? Yeah, I think when I start getting, you know, you have one-on-ones with your people. And when you start noticing that most of the one-on-one content is like, hey, can you help me negotiate with so-and-so? Or, hey, I'm not moving fast enough because XYZ department is saying ABC and like we can't get them on the same page. Or that your report's complaining to you or you you're yourself say, oh my God, I'm in meetings all day. Mm-hmm. And these meetings don't seem to have well-edited attendee list and don't seem to be well-run. Right. I think those are probably like signals for when you're probably spending more um, non-smart hours uh, trying to figure out how to work together, especially at a company that requires very high-level cross-functional collaboration. In terms of, you know, specific things I would suggest, you know, I think it's it's important for senior leadership team and, you know, the utmost senior level, the CEO, to understand and recognize that, hey, this is an important part uh, of the, you know, making sure the company continues to be efficient and, and, and be able to put out, you know, high output, maintain high output and a quality of work. And I think getting aligned with other department leaders and, and senior leadership so that people recognize like, oh, you know, our people are getting bogged down. Because yeah. a lot of times if the utmost senior level are people are aligned, then that makes it a lot easier for folks to work. And I would say that, you know, most of the time this stuff happens unintentionally with, it's not like, oh, other teams just try not to be good citizens. It's really just a reality of teams growing too fast and you have too many new people coming Mm -hmm. on board without clearly defined scope and or just miscommunication on expectation and such. Right, yeah. I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think something our, our listeners could definitely take from that is like listen for like these early warning signs of maybe like a, opportunities to improve how the company is either architected or how it collaborates. I think there's a lot in that for sure. Kind of going back to, I guess, you know, closer to home for you, talk about Nextview. Nextview, as I understand it, it invests in companies from like seed stage and even maybe like pre-seed stage. I think you define yeah. it as a napkin sketch stage. A lot of our listeners are probably anywhere from like napkin through to like maybe like 10 people startups and, and mm-hmm. then obviously beyond as well. What would have to be on a napkin to make it so attractive that you'd be handing over money? Or in general, what do you look for in these uh, in these early stage startups? Yeah, so I think, you know, if you ask 10 investors, they give you 10 different answers because it is, there is no agreed upon playbook. I would say for me personally, I think the, the most important aspect at such early stage is people. And by that, I mean, I really want to get to hear the stories, get to know these people. And I say I would look for what I called an next view, actually, we call it a founder market fit. Mm-hmm. Why are you solving this specific problem? What is your personal connection to this problem? What is the background that you have that could potentially put you in a uniquely advantageous position mm-hmm. to tackle this? And so I think that's a very important element. And I said the other thing is, how have you traction today? By traction, I don't mean that, oh, you have to have like a product that's out there using, you know, used by hundreds of thousands of people, but just getting an understanding of how much you have accomplished 
in the period of time that you have been working on it. And that could just be, even if you're three weeks or three months in, you can still show progress. And I think that's a good indication of this team's execution horsepower. Uh, so I think those are, those are the things I would highlight, you know, and then it gets into more specific about is this an opportunity that makes sense given the market and given the timing and all this other stuff. So it's very much quality of the team. And then secondly, like how well they fit with the opportunity or the market. And then thirdly, the actual idea itself. Is that roughly how you're thinking? Yeah, I, yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever encountered a superstar team with a bad idea and being like had that sort of reluctance? Or inversely, have you ever seen like a weak team with a fantastic idea? And do you, are you best best off walking away or do you think you can course correct these things? Uh, hmm. I mean, I've seen the first one end up working. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to call this a bad idea, but <laughs> I know the Blue Apron founders, uh, the first idea that started, uh, it was actually called Petri Dish, is a Kickstarter for Science Network, uh, right. Science Project. And then they somehow pivoted into Blue Apron. I mean, who, who, would, who would have known? Yeah. But I think that's really hard. You can't use that as, as an investor to say, yeah. you know, ah, I'm going to... I think it's a hard investment thesis. Yeah, you know, you have sure. to, you should invest in something like that if you actually believe that a Kickstarter for science projects yeah. would be a reasonable endeavor to pursue. Yeah, that'd be like investing in like failed games and on the off chance they turn it to Slack and flip. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. Although that does happen. Yeah. yeah. Looking towards 2018, like 2017 has been like in a lot of ways the year of like obviously Bitcoin, but let's not talk about that. Um, <laughs> AI, bots, etc. What are the, the product trends that uh, you're either excited about or you think will kind of come to fruition next year? Not necessarily product trends, but um, I would volunteer a few areas I'm personally interested in, spend time on, yeah. and hopefully money, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, um, you know, going back to the, the everyday economy thing that NextView focuses on, I'm personally very interested in thinking about what does shopping and retail and physical commerce look like in the next 10, 20 years? And, you know, regardless how advanced technology is, we still need and want to buy physical stuff. Mm-hmm. So what that looks like, what are the supporting infrastructural companies that could potentially exist to help uh, enable interesting and much more personalized commerce experience? That's something I'm, I'm personally curious yeah. about. Obviously, like Blue Apron is one type of that in that it's like in you know, you, yeah. you, you could weekly define it as a subscription to ingredients for cooking or whatever. How do you think about subscription ideas at this point? Like, I mean, there are like subscriptions for razor blades, there's subscriptions for socks, there's subscriptions for like lots of physical products. If, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I've got a subscription idea for like cleaning products or whatever, is that at this point, you know, is that idea sort of that category of idea just done in your head? Or do you think... Like, are these mostly brand plays at this point? What's exciting to you about subscriptions at this point? Or when you talk about the future of physical goods, are you thinking about something totally different? Um, it's funny because I never really, I don't really kind of react to things through the lens of subscription per se. Mm-hmm. You know, I think subscription as a model fits naturally in certain categories because, for example, people eat every day. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're high frequency purchases that, okay, you can see that uh, this is, could potentially make sense. And then you have to think about like, okay, is, is the model going to be additive or to the user experience, right? right? And, and I almost focus, it's just a description of the business model as yeah. opposed to the fundamental core of what 
the user experience looks like for the consumer. Gotcha. And so I guess the way I answer that question is like, does it make sense for a consumer? If so, yeah. then it's great. If not, then it's not great cool. uh, because it creates more friction yeah, yeah, as yeah. a result yeah. as opposed to reducing it. Cool. And I, I say the other area, you know, I'm interested in exploring more is, is around the home category. And recently became a home owner. So I spent, I'm spending more time as a user. And I think probably just because of the product background, I get interested in, in, in the area when I can personally empathize with mm-hmm. uh, the user experience. So NextView has done a few investments in the, in the space, Renovizel, Pentzen, but I think we're looking to do more. I'm curious and interested in learning more about uh, how people think about from home buying all the way to maintenance, mm-hmm. to decor to other things that uh, households spend a lot of energy and time on around their home. Does that include like home automation or is, is on the hardware side of things or are you specifically thinking of the administration or like the heavy lifting of owning a property? Um, you know, I think we will look at automation as well. I think the lens we really look through things is that, hey, does this something that really creates a habitual experience for everyday people? Is it pervasive enough that it touches a is relevant for a lot of the population out there? If so, then we think it really fits with the everyday economy, as opposed to uh, this really only applies to I don't know the one percenter, so to speak. Right. Then it might not be as relevant because it is such a small pocket of the population. Yeah, these are the ideas that like light up San Francisco, but never managed to be successful anywhere else. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if, if our listeners are working on either new ways to think about commerce around physical goods or anything to do with home, home ownership, home renovation, home decoration, home maintenance, they could do a lot worse than reach out to Melody and NextView. Is that a fair appraisal? Yeah, of course. Awesome. Cool. This has been a really, really great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I will be sure to link up your article, your blog, et cetera, in the show notes for our listeners. And uh, just once again, thank you so much for your time today, Melody. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.